Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 18, with Pastor John King. Good morning, you guys. Happy New Year. I haven't had a chance to say it. Uh, yeah, indeed, we're in 2022. Boy, oh boy, where does the time go, huh? Today we're going to be picking up the book of Daniel. We're going to go to chapter 4. We'll be in verses 1 through 18. And while you're finding your way there, Daniel 4, 1 through 18, we're going to kind of remind ourselves a couple, several weeks ago we left off at the conclusion of chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. And here we saw yet another confession by this great king Nebuchadnezzar uh, about God, about the greatness of God. It was almost as though he was answering his own question back in verse 15 of chapter 3, I believe, when he pridefully said to the uh, three young men, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Who is this God? We should be careful by asking that question, shouldn't we? His response to witnessing God's dramatic and complete deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, as you recall, might have left us to ponder what happened to him. You know, what, what kind of experience was this? Uh, was he, and you know, you hear his language and you hear how he praises God and he talks about your God, etc., etc. And, you know, the question was, you know, was he changed or was he simply charmed by the power of God? And so we were reminded then, and we're reminded again today, that you think about God and his work in a person's life and in your life, it, it should stir up a reaction. It should stir up your own reaction to the complete and total deliverance that God has offered each person, each of us, each person. You know, God, when he died on the cross, he, he paid the sins for all mankind. So everybody has the option, or excuse me, the offer from God while they're alive to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, because Jesus atoned for that. He atoned for our sins by sacrificing his life on the cross. So we get that. Um, you know, that's the gospel, and that's, that's really what we're all about, is the gospel. So now this week, uh, we get to hear directly from the king himself, a very interesting uh, chapter. Um, it's been identified by, by scholars and historians and theologians as really the only chapter that anybody can think of that was originally written by a non-believing pagan. And the language that he uses to proclaim the greatness of God's signs and wonders and to describe God's kingdom and dominion as being everlasting makes us wonder again. Does this man want to truly know God in a personal way? You know, it's one thing to know about God. And he certainly saw Many things. He witnessed many things about God. And so as we make our way through chapter 4, we will see that indeed God will humble the proud, you know, as he, as he accomplishes his will through the time and through generations of men, he will humble the proud as he accomplishes his purposes through his chosen instruments. And Nebuchadnezzar was one of God's chosen instruments. And the result is, of course, that God's name will be glorified. And so each one of you have been chosen by God to be an instrument for his grace and to bring glory to his name. Amen? Let's read our passage, Nebuchadnezzar, 
the king, we see in verse 4, chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king, writing, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it was good to declare the signs of wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me. He's going to go through this again. That they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers came in and I told them the dream. But they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And when he says things like that, it makes us wonder about where he's at with God, doesn't it? Verse 9, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, he's saying this, and that no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. And he goes and he tells him, he says, these were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold... A tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. It reached, uh, excuse me, its heights reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. And in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him, pay attention now, he changes from a tree to a person. Let him get graze with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whomever he will and sets it over the lowest of men. Verse 18, This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. Father, we come before you now, and Lord, we just simply ask that you would go before us. Lord, we, we simply ask that you would help us to take in these passages that we just read. 
and that you would bring the true meaning out, what you desire to be known to our hearts, and for the purpose to equip us and, and to encourage us, but really, along with the letter, to make known to us and to the world that you reign forever and ever, and your kingdom is mighty, and that your dominion goes on for generation upon generation. And you've given us the gospel message with which to preach and to teach the lost of this world and to encourage us with and to strengthen us, Lord. So please go before us now as we study your word. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, Amen. Well, we start off with a proclamation of praise. You know, the king's dominion. Uh, some of you, uh, if you, you know, I've been, you'll know that I drive, uh, Margaret and I both, because our kids are now stationed up in D.C., we drive by King's Dominion a lot more now, that famous place. I didn't realize how far away it was, or actually how close they are to it. Uh, the King's Dominion, though, uh, we're going to talk about that. His, his, surely his dominion extends beyond that theme park, right? <laughs> So we pick up this narrative, though. Keep in mind, uh, in context, let's, let's understand that this is approximately 20 to 30 years after the fiery events, fiery events in chapter 3, after the, you know, the men were delivered from that fiery furnace. And we will read here in chapter 4, as we go through it, that the king has been out of commission for the last seven years. You know, we don't know if he was... What, what they did with him in the palace. You know, they may have put him away and they didn't say much about it. History doesn't record much about it. But there was, uh, interestingly, a, a kind of a, a, a silent time in secular history uh, during the, a seven-year period. And he was apparently suffering, as we will see, from a case of temporary insanity. Uh, quite crazy, in fact. Now, scholars believe that he wrote this proclamation. You know, these were his words that that uh, Daniel is repeating, he wrote this pop pop proclamation in verses 1 through 3 to explain his long absence, to tell people, the world and everybody at large, you know, why he's been sort of uh, incognito for the last seven years, and to give a strong public witness of the Most High God. So keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this very unique chapter in the Bible, Daniel chapter 4. It starts out in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king, okay, so this is from him, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell upon the earth. Now he's ready to testify. Nebuchadnezzar is going to use his position and authority to influence, excuse me, his influence as well, to spread the word across his empire, which was a very vast empire at the time, it wasn't the entire known world, and those who would hear about this in neighboring countries and kingdoms. So he was using his power, his pulpit, if you will, to get the word out. And what does he say? He starts out, peace be multiplied to you. This is that Aramaic word shalom, which is, corresponds to the Hebrew word, which you're all familiar with, shalom. Shalom, meaning prosperity and well-being. So he, he greets them with a great, you know, with a salutation. And then he says in verse 2, I thought it good, I thought it good to declare he says, basically, he says, let me tell you. Let me tell you something. Now, this is a man who normally, he does, you know, he does all the important talking, okay, because he's the great king Nebuchadnezzar. But he says, I, I thought it good to tell you these things. 
that the signs and wonders of the Most High God has worked for me. So he broadcasts as loud and clear as he can about God's power and ability. God's power and ability. And he says, signs and wonders. You know, and and we, we talk about signs and wonders. And, and real briefly, let's, let's talk about those. Signs and wonders often go together as words together. They both sort of mean miracles. So you go, miracles, miracles, miracles and miracles. Well, it's signs and wonders, um, translated in English, meaning something astonishing. What, what kind of, you know, aside from the things that Daniel has seen, or excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar has seen so far, you know, interpretation of dreams when he didn't even tell him what the dream was about, deliverance from a fiery trial, all that stuff, a fourth person in the fire, not, you know, coming out and not smelling like smoke. Despite all those things that he had seen, we see all through the Old Testament. We see celestial events. We see signs and wonders that, that manifest themselves as celestial events. Uh, Joshua chapter 10 the Lord defeated the Amorites with actual hailstones thrown from heaven. He took out an army. In that same chapter, he commanded God, the moon and the sun, to stand still. Read it for yourselves in Joshua 10, verses 12 through 14. It says, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, Stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ijalon. And this is God telling the moon and the sun that he created to stand still. And so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is it not written? Is it not a historical record in the book of what they call the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. That's a long stop, isn't it? That's more than a solar eclipse, right? And there had been no day like that before and after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So you here you have miracles, signs and wonders in celestial events. We also know of instantaneous healings. Multiple accounts, of course, all throughout the Bible. 2 Kings 5.14 It says, so he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. This speaks of Naaman, the Syrian commander through the prophet Elisha or Elisha. We also know that God controls nature. We had the parting of the Red Sea. Okay, you know, we don't even need to go on. We know that objects and animals act in unexpected ways. These are all signs and wonders of God. Balaam's donkey that speaks, uh, the floating axe head, all these things happen. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar, and he wants to say, I thought it good to declare. In other words, I'm not going to hold down the truth about God. I'm going to tell you what I've experienced. The Most High God, he's highest and supreme. Now, he's a polytheistic man. He lives in an area, a time when people believed in multiple gods. So he says he's the most high God. And notice he says, I want to tell you about what he has worked or what he has wrought to make or to do to perform. That's what God does. And now in verse 3 he says, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. The language here that it's so domineering, it's so huge and it's so powerful 
that words can't really describe it. I mean, multiple times, like I said, he's witnessed God's miracles. And he says, goes on further, and he talks about his kingdom. He says his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You know, this kingdom speaks of royalty and authority. Everlasting, I mean, it's perpetual. It's always going to be. And this is coming from the most powerful man on earth. The greatest king of ancient history. And then he says, and his dominion is from generation to generation. This is, if you can measure it as a measure of time, it continues forever. It, it endures from generation to generation. We, we, you know, we have knowledge of prior generations. We do our family tree. We can look back. We may have lived to uh, know our great-grandparents. Now, he's, he's talking about this dominion of God that just extends forever and ever, generation upon generation. So Nebuchadnezzar is using the kind of descriptive royal language that may have been assigned to himself, what, what, you know, what people would attribute to him. And he realizes that no one can be above the God of the Israelites. This great king, described as the head of gold in his first dream, bore witness to God about God's miracles and his eternal control and rule over all. How does that help us? Well, look at what just happened. Again, this king's proclamation was a document of praise to the Lord. And historically, it says the event recorded here became an official proclamation. He made it known throughout. It was actually composed by King Nebuchadnezzar himself and circulated through the entire Babylonian Empire. And what did he say? Well, he said three things about God, if you're taking notes. First, he said, God has great power to work miracles. That's, that's the God we serve. God has great power to work miracles. Number two, God's kingdom is eternal. His kingdom is eternal. And three, God's control and rule or dominion over all endures to this very day and beyond from generation to generation. And so, you know, as you take that in, it, it does make you wonder. You know, what about today's world and all the powerful rulers, the billionaires, the, the globalists who think they run this world right now? They seem to ignore, it would appear, the one true God, the most high God. And if one of the greatest men who ever lived in regards to power and control saw God's hand in the affairs of men, how dare the men and women of today act and live as though he didn't exist? But we know that's prophetic. We know Jesus said that in the last days, that it will be as in the days of Noah. And people will live their lives like nothing's going on, nothing's wrong. They're going to live their lives as though God didn't exist. Some of you may be aware, speaking of uh, powerful men of our day, uh, Elon Musk. He's, he's, I think, the richest man in the world right now. I'm not sure. Uh, a brilliant man, a brilliant businessman. Uh, go, go to the internet. Go to Living Waters, uh, Ray Comfort's channel, uh, and watch... You may have seen it already, but watch part of the YouTube interview that this guy just had recently. Um, Elon Musk was on the Babylon Bee. You guys are familiar with the Babylon Bee. And he was being interviewed. 
And these guys are so excited to have the richest man, most powerful, one of the most powerful globalists in the world on their show that they asked him to, uh, you know, if he would receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Now, he was very tentative. You know, he was kind of like this Nebuchadnezzar, right? But he is, I really respect. Anyway, I don't want to ruin it for you. Go watch it. But watch the Ray Comfort version on Living Waters. He's got a channel on YouTube about what's going on. And, you, you know, you, you see that even the most powerful of men in this world, a guy who is revolutionary, he's revolutionizing our world through this, you know, electric technology, electric vehicles and such, and space travel and everything else. And pray for him. Pray for Elon Musk. Who knows? Maybe he'll be the next Nebuchadnezzar. And we hope he doesn't have to go through what Nebuchadnezzar went through. But that's the world we live in. Our governments really don't control anything. Our governments are right now, and our world is being controlled by people like him, globalists. I mean, their hands everywhere, okay? Well, so they think they're in control, right? We know who's in control. But this event also shows how surprising God's sovereignty is. Because if you have listened to those who were, you've known who were least likely to concede, not least likely to succeed in the yearbook, least likely to concede and turn their life over to Christ, well, you know to him be the glory. I mean, it may well be you. <laughs> it may be that you, and I can say, speak for myself, least likely to surrender their life to Jesus Christ and to him be the glory. So we notice that this pagan king used all that he had. Here's a point for us to take. He had this pulpit, if you will. He had this influence over this culture, and he used all that he had to proclaim the greatness of God. What does that say about you and I? About our witness for Jesus? Are we using all that God has given us to magnify him and to tell others about his offer of salvation? Are we willing to give witness of his great power over our lives? Think about what he's, the influence you might have over others. And every one of you is an influencer. Everybody has somebody that looks up to them or has a, a position, a voice in our society, in our culture, in our city, here in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, or wherever you live, out in the counties. It's a challenge when you see this great pagan king literally using all that he has to proclaim the truth about God. Next we see Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. Now he's going to, as we read, he's going to go ahead and read it back. Something's different already from his first dream, right? You may already know, but we'll get to that. And it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 4, was at rest in my house. I was kicked back. I was at ease. Maybe how you want, some of you may be this afternoon watching a football game with a nice warm, you know, the, the heat turned up and a plate of nachos. I don't know what you got planned. But you may be kicked back. And he says, I was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. This is uh, this language, again, it's a beautiful ancient language. It means luxuriant or prosperous or favorable circumstances. He uses what we call a tree analogy, flourishing. You see it. It's common in the ancient languages, and we'll see more of it today. In fact, in Job 15.32, he talks about this tree analogy. He says, it will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not be green. Referring to you know, the life and the vibrancy and the accomplishments of a man or a woman. 
And in this case, he would not uh, bud. He would not pr- produce fruit, if you will. So here he is. He's in a, a sort of a state of perfect contentment of life. You know, how many people have, at least on the surface, told you that? I'm good. Especially when you present the need for the gospel. Or you bring the, the truth about Jesus and, and you, make, you help them to realize that maybe they're not so good. But on the, on the surface, you know, the, the answer is, you know, if you ask, can I, can I share my life with you? Can I share my testimony with you about Christ? And you get the reply sometimes like, no, I'm good. I'm good, right? But you and I need to, we, we can fall in the same trap, okay, about, you know, thinking we're good, everything's fine. The reason is that attitude of perfect contentment can, doesn't always, but can be fertile ground for self-sufficiency and pride. You know, this is, this is the problem that you, we're starting to understand about Nebuchadnezzar, marveling at this, why this great king would give homage to God. But we realize that the reason why he hasn't gone all the way yet with God is because he has self-sufficiency and pride in the way. That's what stops anybody. Now, we talk about being in contentment, you know, the fact that you may be uh, sitting in front of a nice, warm, flat screen this afternoon, watching a movie, who knows, watching a, a, a football game, maybe, I don't know. Does this mean that we're not allowed to enjoy the fruits of our labor? Of course not. Of course not. Not as long as we realize who gave us those things in the first place and the ability to enjoy them, right? So what, what can happen when we're thankful is it can replace pride. Thankfulness can replace pride and give us a desire to serve others and tell others, tell the lost about Jesus. Because that's what we're called to do. Because we're only going to be here for a short while. You know, we see these generations don't last, do they? And we're going to do it because of his great love and mercy for us. You know how it works, okay? You all know how it works. Just when you think it's time to kind of bathe ourselves in personal pleasure and entertainment. I'm talking about, you know, really pouring it on, right? It's always something. (laughs) It's always something that comes up. And the reason is, is because you and I are so prone to neglecting the needs of others. But it's okay. Balance. Thankful to God is going to change everything. Attitude is everything, right? It's It's your attitude. But anyway, Nebuchadnezzar was living large. And here's a problem too. Nebuchadnezzar was living large while God's people and others, the people in his kingdom, he had conquered were now under his complete and total control. Or so it seemed. You know, and that's the big beef in our society and has been throughout, throughout generations, right? The man's in charge. The man, whatever the man is, whether it's government, whether it's uh, corporations, oppressors, you know, those with more oppress those with less. And it's true because of greed and selfishness and pride. And here we have Nebuchadnezzar. But God's got something he needs to do through him. So what does he do? He says, well, uh, you know, I was kicked back in my, my, uh, my palace, in my comfortable chair. Uh, I saw a dream which made me afraid. See, it's always something, isn't it? You can't really sit and enjoy the fruits of your labor if you're not right with your maker. 
I saw a dream which made me afraid. Now that word afraid means dreadful. It was terrifying to him. And then he says, the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. So he was terrified and he was alarmed and he was dismayed about this dream. And you would be too. This was God's way of getting his attention. The king's first dream of the great figure, remember the first dream, he had this great figure, this great statue, composite of uh, different metals and clay and feet of clay. Um, The gold, the bronze, the silver, and iron. And it says, so that was the first dream. And it was made of various materials that were stumbled and crushed by a rock. Remember the rock that became a mountain and filled the earth. I mean, that was a crazy dream that he had the first time. And it caused him to be disturbed, and he indeed lost sleep. But keep in mind that this dream was a little bit more intense. It really scared him. It terrified the king. Now, we talked about dreams in the Bible. We have ordinary dreams of sleep. You may have had one last night. We have dreams of prophetic meaning, which is what we're talking about here. And then you have dreams of false prophets. So we don't always put stock into dreams. We need to be very discerning and very wise. But here we have a very familiar story in verse 6. He says, having this dream that upset him, he says, therefore, I issued a decree. So that's what he does. You know, something bothers him and he issues a decree. <laughs> He's a big man. I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon before me. So he made the command. He's going to bring in the usual characters, these wise men of Babylon. And he says that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And we ask the question, is he really going to go through this again? Remember how it worked out the last, didn't work out too good for him or his wise men. Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes, he is going to go through it again, but no, he's going to, it's going to be a little bit different. So verse 7, it says, uh, you know, we read it, the, the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in. Um, and I told them the dream. Well, now you notice right away the difference between the first dream, right? The first dream was a test. I'm not telling you my dream, you tell me my dream, and it's interpretation or I'm going to kill you and destroy you. I'm going to turn your house into a dung heap. And I'll kill all your family. In fact, I will cut you to pieces. I'll, I'll dismember your bodies. And so he says, I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Now, normally they would hear a dream. That was their profession. That was their job, you know, to interpret dreams because they were, you know, magic men. And they would hear a dream and they'd come up with something right? Oh, great king, here's what this means, right? They'd cut open the entrails of an animal, or they'd see the star, whatever they had to do uh, to try and, you know, come up with some, um, some you know, untrue stuff. Let's leave it at that. So we notice it's a different scenario. And then verse 8, you know, almost as a sigh of relief, the king writes, he goes, but at last Daniel came before me. And then he makes, us, he makes the reader understand that you know, he had changed Daniel's name. Daniel came before me and he says, his name is Belshazzar according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. So obviously the king had a very high regard for his servant Daniel. And as we said earlier, some commentators believe that the timing of this second dream was you know, possibly up maybe three decades, 30 years beyond, uh, you know, into the relationship with Daniel and his companions. Remember, Daniel lived a long life in Babylon, 
and King Nebuchadnezzar, they were together for a lot. They became friends. They became, you know, uh, very close. And, and so, you know, he's like, at last Daniel came before me. The name Belshazzar, again, we review, is, it means Beltus or Bel, protect the prince or protect the king or favored by Bel. And the reason I want to cover that meaning is because when we get to chapter 5, we're going to meet uh, somebody named Belshazzar. So Belshazzar and Belshazzar are not the same people. He says, Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. Now, his, the name of his God, the name of these ancient gods were often referred to as Bel or Marduk. Um, and these were just these deities that they worshipped. And so... You know, he reminds the reader that it was him or his, his, his uh, eunuchs who gave the names. They changed their names. Remember, they brought them captive into Babylon. And then what's one of the first things they did? They changed their names from their original name. And they, they would learn a new language so that they would be totally subservient to the king. But of course, they refused to eat his food and they stood up to him. And we remember that story. But notice he says, in him is the spirit of the holy God. Now, most versions of the Bible, aside from the New King James, uh, reads holy gods with a small g, holy gods. The king is Babylonian, and they believed in many gods. Again, we said he's a polytheistic man. He believes in many gods. But as believers, we know that the source of the spirit being identified is God himself. But we also realize that Nebuchadnezzar is not at this point making that distinction between his gods and the God of Israel. And in verse 9, it says, I told the dream before him. And of course, he reads the dream. Um, uh, but he says, uh, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the Spirit of God is in you and no secret troubles you, because of the past experience we've had, uh, I know that you're going to be able to give me the answer. That's why he's so thankful to have him here. Now you may notice when you encounter people who um, maybe they don't know God or they're not walking with the Lord, and you know that they're wrestling with conviction because they may have embraced a certain sin in their life or corruption. They're, they're sort of wrestling with it. Their, their conscience is working, and you know it because they've come to you to tell. They want to explain the situation. And they will oftentimes look to a believer, you know, which is why it's so important for you and I to be ready in season and out, out of season. Because you may be the only Bible that anybody, somebody's going to hear. And you need to be ready, and you need to be tender, and you need to be wise. Because they'll look for a believer for wisdom, at the same time, though, they're unable to surrender to God. You can tell them all the things they need to do and the fact that they need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And at least at this time, they're not ready to go that far. And obviously, as we go through this chapter, neither was this great king. And so he says, you'll explain to me. Um, now, the question is, knowing Daniel's ability to interpret his past dreams, why would he not call on him first? Why would he only call those wise men first? You know, why not just summon Daniel and bring him up? And I believe that really what this shows is stubbornness. You know, we have it too. Often we wait until the last resort to see what God's word has for us. 
You know, we'll, we'll run to the medicine cabinet. We'll go to whatever, you know, uh, whatever's ailing us. We'll do all these things. Uh, we'll, we'll seek the world's wisdom. We'll go by our own, you know, experience without going before God and asking God to do his work and to give us an answer and to give us a word of wisdom to teach us. So, you know, he's obviously just as, uh, as stubborn as all of us, right? Tend to be. But what we see here in the, the last part of this uh, scripture in verses 10 through 18, we see that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Now we know that his kingdom come. It's coming. Okay, We've been talking about what's going to happen during the great millennium where God himself will rule with the rod of iron, Jesus Christ. But now, right now in our time, we also know that the Bible declares that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And you may be looking at uh, you know, leadership in our country and you go, where are you, God? <laughs> what are you doing? You know, so, uh, but again, God's ways are not our ways. Not at all. But he says, uh, these were the visions, he explains, these were the visions of my head, verse 10, on my bed, I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its, great, its height was great. Again, we're talking about tree imagery. Uh, if you look at the book of Ezekiel in chapter 31, you see all throughout uh, several verses we've got up there. Uh, when it talks about the fall of Pharaoh and, and Egypt, and Egypt is likened to a tree that's being toppled. And you, you look at the descriptive language, it says, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to the multitude, who are you like in your greatness? Indeed, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon. In other words, he's you know, sort of personifying these trees uh, to represent uh, kingdoms. With fine branches that shaded the forest and of high stature, you know, we love tall trees, the great beautiful redwoods if you've been out west. We love the, the beauty and the majesty of a great tall trees and forests. And it says here, uh, this tree, talking back to the dream, it says its height was great. In other words, this indicates strength, this, this you know, head and shoulders above the rest, if you will. Uh, these are metaphors. We look at Daniel's interpretation and we see human pride. When we get into the further on, uh, into verses uh, by, by verse 27, which we won't cover today, you'll see that this tree represents human pride, this tallness, this greatness. It says in verse 11 that the tree grew and became strong and its height reached to the heavens, you know, to the visible sky. I mean, you, you think, when you think of these things and you realize they're metaphors and then you're driving on this flat land that we live in and you see these tall towers and we see all the stuff that you can see for miles and miles. And it could be seen to the ends of the earth. So his dream is telling him that it's global. It's a global thing that it's visible over the entire planet. Uh, so that's interesting to note as we move on. And of course, its leaves were lovely. Its fruit was abundant. It was food for all. Not only protection, but provision. And it goes on, it says, The beasts of the field found shade. The birds of the heaven dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. In verse 13, he says, And I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed that there was a watcher. A watcher. What is that? He describes it. A watcher as a holy one coming down from heaven. Now the word watcher, remember this is written in Aramaic. This is one section of the Bible. It's not Hebrew originally. The original language is Aramaic. 
And a watcher is meaning an angel, a wakeful angel. In other words, angels don't sleep. They're up constantly. You know, they, they never, they're, they're, they're spiritual bodies, so they're not, they don't need to rest. But it's an Aramaic term for a watchman who is awake and alert. And then he says, a watcher, a holy one, now separate, a holy, an angel. Some people try to say, you know, bad angel. Anyway, another story. Comes down from heaven, God's messenger. So obviously this is speaking, the watchers are speaking, if you will, of angels. And what's the message? Well, here's what this watcher said in verse 14. He cried aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and cut off its branches and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. In other words, destroy that great tree. Take it down. And giving warning, let the beast get out from underneath of it and get the birds off. And it's the command is that the tree to be taken down and those who rely on the tree for their you know, life, they, would, they should depart from it. Now verse 15, but nevertheless, very interesting, nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth and bind them, they will be bound with a band of iron and bronze. What does this do? I mean, it's not, it's, it's like he's saying, you know, don't bring a stump grinder and remove it all the way to its roots. Bind it. And what that does is it stunts the growth temporarily because there may be regrowth. And as we go through this chapter, you're going to understand that Nebuchadnezzar's got to go through some stuff before he's restored. And then it describes in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And let now look right there. Let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Notice that. that it's changing from the, you know, the tree analogy to the person. And he's personifying the tree. This is getting too close, way too close to comfort for Nebuchadnezzar. You can understand why he is terrified and he wants to know what's going on. And it goes on in verse 16. Now let his heart be changed from that of a man and let him be given the heart of a beast. His heart to be changed. Now, that's, that's not the beating heart in his chest. It's the mind, okay? It's something is happening suggesting a, a psychological disease or a mental illness. And be given a heart of a beast. Dehumanized, in a sense, if, if it was that. But it's mainly a mind thing. And it says, let seven times pass over him. That's seven years. Verse 17, now we see God's purpose. Why is, he, why is he explaining these things? Why is he going to, you know, we know the story. He's going to put Nebuchadnezzar through this for seven years. Why? Well, it says in verse 17, this decision is by the decree of the watchers. Well, I thought God was in control. I thought God was going to say what happened. Well, he is, and he does. It says the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones. That's very interesting, isn't it? Now, this decree or judicial decision or mandate is what some would call the divine counsel, okay? Some theologians would, would refer to this as a term being used by Hebrew Bible scholars for the heavenly host and the assembly of divine beings who administer to the affairs of the cosmos under Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they go on to note that all ancient Mediterranean cultures had some conception of a divine council, including Israel. However, 
the Israelite religion's divine council was distinct. The structure of the Israelite divine council, uh, in the opinion of this one theologian, uh, Michael Heiser, uh, has implications for understanding God and the unseen world in biblical theology. Just an interesting thought. Um, and that's sort of the, the modern theological take on this, but there, people have been saying this for a long time. They've brought up the fact that the, the Jewish religion had some elements in it that you know, certainly saw this divine counsel. And you see that in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 through 23. And if you will, just notice that. It says, Then Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven, this is the watchers, this divine counsel, standing by on his right hand and on his left. Verse 20, and the Lord said to his divine counsel, he says, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. So here you have God's you know, heavenly you know, consultation going on between his angels and God himself. And then verse 21, then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. Interesting. The Lord said to him, in what way? And so he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. God's still in charge. He has a divine counsel, if that's true. And it appears that he does, but he's still in charge. And so what we see here is, again, back to our, our text for today, we see a man who was issuing decrees now he declares the purpose of God's decrees. This was a man who was in the power to change things. And the reason he says, the reason why he's telling us this, we know, is in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives, to him whoever, gives it to whoever he will and sets it on the lowest of men. So the man, Nebuchadnezzar, was to be a testimony before the whole world a testimony that God is sovereign and that he alone controls the world's rulers and kingdoms. And additionally, God gives the kingdoms to whoever he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. Therefore, all the self-sufficient and proud rulers of the earth needed to know that God could remove them at any time. And this is one of the primary themes we see in the book of Daniel, the God's sovereignty. We keep going over it uh, over and again and again. Remember Psalm 103, verse 19. It says, very simply, sums it all up. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Finally, verse 18, he says, declare its interpretation. Daniel had a good track record with the king. And he says, you are able for the spirit of the holy God is in you. He says it again. He reminds Daniel how he sees him, indicating that the king had not yet come to personal faith through repentance before God. I believe that's coming, but he's not there yet. So think about the people in your life who are just, you know, maybe they're asking the question. Maybe they're starting to question things. You know, people are questioning things more and more these days. So let the Lord reveal to you if there's somebody in your life like that. There may or may not be who is really seeking and wanting to know truth. You and I need to, you know, have those bridges established. You know, we, we get in the habit of just hanging out with our saved friends, 
right? That's what happens as Christians. And, you know, we avoid those who give us a heartache, especially our, our difficult relatives, right? But be ready because people are seeking answers. And we're going to talk about next week what we have in store for uh, some things that we've, we've laid before, you know, laid before the Lord, some plans that we would like to do, some events that we'd like to have as a church, things that you guys are used to doing. But let's, let's do it in, with a different mindset. When we see these things, you know, we'll, we'll set the dates, but let's put it before the Lord. You know, let's, let's see how we're going to react around in, in this world. We're not just here just to be here, okay? You guys are always going to be well-fed in this church, and you're always going to be, I pray, always going to be loved. But he has more for us, too. And what better way to do it with his work than with each other? Finally, you know, when it comes to this sort of thought of conviction, what goes on in your mind? You know, maybe the Lord has been speaking to your conscience. Maybe things in your life are getting a little bit too close for comfort. Question is, is what scares you? What keeps you up at night? What causes you to lose sleep? It could be that you're going through a time of rebellion against God, that you've, you've chosen a lifestyle, you're doing things behind the scenes that maybe not many people know, and it's causing you to be fearful and terrified. As we go through this chapter, we're going to see that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But know that the opposite is also true, friends, that the humble shall be exalted. It's true of Jesus our Lord, and it's true for us. 1 Peter 5, 6, it says to us, he says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that may, he may exalt you in due time. In due time. Amen? All right, Lord, we thank you for our time today, and we ask, Father, that, you know... You would speak, that we could soak it in. I mean, we, maybe we covered a lot today. I don't know, Lord, but whatever you've had for each of us, I, I pray that it will bear fruit in our lives. I, I pray that it will cause change wherever change is needed, Lord. A new year always brings those things forward. When we think about the future and the past, and Lord, I just ask that you go before us in these coming days. As our week begins tomorrow, we know the world is still waiting there for us. We know all the, <clears throat> the rattle and the hum and the clanking gong of reality is going to speak through the media and the news broadcasts. It's going to be the same old story, Lord. But with you, all things are made new. And so I pray, Lord, you would strengthen us, that you would guide us that you would sustain us each and every day as we seek to be with you, as we seek your face, as we get ready to close with a worship song, I just pray, Lord, that if anybody here that maybe needs prayer or just counsel, whatever it is, Lord, that they would seek that from those they trust and that we would minister to one another even here today. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for all that you have for us. Even the stuff that's unknown that's out there, we, are, we're, we don't know what's going to happen. It's scary, but Lord, we know that we can put our trust in you. 
And so we pray all these things now in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, and, and recite our prayer, and then we will close with a song. Romans 16, 25, and 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.
Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Then came the of our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless. God bless.